deconstruction is a popular term to describe disillusioned young Christians who are deconstructing their faith. Burned by their experiences in what they call the institutional church, they seek to deconstruct their faith by questioning everything they have believed. The goal of the deconstruction movement is to reconstruct their faith around love and the example of Christ. They look around at the church landscape and say, this can't be what Jesus had in mind. So the deconstructionist rejects the church in the hope of embracing Jesus. Unfortunately, many deconstruct straight into agnosticism, not Jesus. Why? Trying to follow Jesus while rejecting the church leaves a spiritual void that needs to be filled. Some fill that void through a selective online community or some personal friends who share their doubts and questions. It will never work, my friends, to provide stable spiritual renewal and growth. Spiritual renewal is not sustainable without spiritual fellowship. Jesus established the church to fill that void. He didn't just establish an invisible universal church. Jesus created the foundation for organized communities of faith to sustain our spiritual growth. The local church, for all of its flaws, is God's idea, not ours. Augustine of Hippo went so far as to say, no salvation exists outside the church. Now, I'm not saying you can't become a Christian unless you go to church. I am saying you can't maintain and grow as a follower of Christ without the church, meaning a community of fellow believers speaking truth into your life. A protest is exciting, it's stimulating, but it takes discipline, structure, and organization to maintain momentum and make a lasting difference. Structure sustains renewal. Sometimes people experience spiritual renewal as a liberating, exciting, and stimulating process. They don't want to be bound by any structure in their renewal. But what happens is that they run spiritually hot and cold. They ride the roller coaster of spiritual highs and lows without the stability of a framework to sustain their vitality. Nehemiah understood this principle. He knew that his job was bigger than rebuilding some ancient rock walls. He needed to rebuild a nation, a community of faith. No lasting spiritual renewal is maintained without structured discipline and organization. Now, most people consider Nehemiah 7, this very long chapter, most people consider it to be a boring chapter. But why did Nehemiah record it for us? Because it has value for our lives even today. 
there are four principles about how structure sustains renewal that I want us to see in this chapter. First, in Nehemiah 7, verses 1 through 4, organization requires delegation. Organization requires delegation. Now, when the wall was rebuilt, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, and the Levites were appointed, then I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man, and feared God more than many. Then I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are standing guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. Also, appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post, and each in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. In the early stages of any exciting new adventure, the leadership is hands-on and directive. But as the organization grows, then the leaders must delegate authority to others because it becomes busier than one person can handle. This is the situation that Nehemiah finds himself in when the walls are completed. So Nehemiah first delegates authority to three groups of people in verse 1. He delegates to the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites. Gatekeepers were usually Levites who were appointed to tend the gates of the temple. At one time, there were as many as 4,000 of them. They maintained the gates and also sometimes distributed the financial offerings of the people. They were like the trustees in a modern church. The psalmist said that he would rather be a doorkeeper, a gatekeeper, in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of the wicked, Psalm 84.10. The singers were appointed to be the choir for the temple services. They were leaders in the worship ceremonies of the temple. The Levites were scribes and teachers of the law. They supported the priests in God's work throughout the land. Verse 2 tells us that Nehemiah then appointed two key men to run the affairs of the city of Jerusalem. He appointed Hanani as the mayor and Hananiah as the chief of police. He gave them the directions and authority to appoint other officials to serve under them in the administration of the city. At this time, verse 4 tells us, there were few people actually living within the walls of the city, but this, of course, would soon change. There are always reasons not to delegate authority and decision-making. Perhaps we feel that others are not as competent as we are. Other leaders do things differently. Maybe they are not as efficient. The danger is that they will botch it with people. They might hurt or offend someone or mishandle a situation. Perhaps they are not as committed as we want them to be. We can always find reasons not to delegate ministry. Yet, we cannot sustain real growth in the lives of people in the church 
if we do not delegate responsibility to others and let them do it without the benefit of our thumb in the middle of their backs. Proverbs 14.4 says this, Where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much increase comes from the strength of the ox. If you want a clean manger, shoot the oxen. But of course you won't have much harvest without the oxen to do the work in the fields. So, we have a choice. It is the choice of life in every church. We can have a clean manger and no harvest, or a big harvest and a dirty manger. Here's a lesson we all need to hear as Christians. Life in the church is messy. We can't get the work done without dirtying the manger. Life in the church is messy. Life among believers is messy. Sometimes we can become so concerned about keeping life in the church pristine that nothing gets done in the lives of people. Working with people is always messy, and we won't always get it right. Maybe Maybe you had this experience, and it left you disillusioned about the church. Life and ministry in the church got messy. Well, my friends, oxen make the manger dirty, too. But in the end, if the oxen gain strength, the work goes on, and the harvest is good. So don't give up on the church because the manger is messy. Delegation leads to growth. When a church is small, it functions much like a wheel. The hub is the pastor and the spokes are the people in their ministries. Every decision is cleared through the hub, and the size of the hub de determines how many spokes can be maintained. As a church grows, it becomes more like a pyramid. No longer is everything cleared through one individual, but rather other people. Boards and committees make the decisions that relate to the ministries. Now, now the size is not limited to anything. The church can grow. The oxen can be released to do their work in the fields. The danger comes when the leader wants to control all the people. A controlling leader is a real danger. He or she still wants to be the hub and everything must run through that person. Or perhaps the leader sits on top of the pyramid and demands that everyone do what he wants. In either case, spiritual growth is damaged in that process. That is unhealthy leadership. Healthy churches function like an inverted pyramid, where the leader serves other leaders who serve the people. This frees the people to grow and serve most effectively in their ministries for the Lord. The first principle for sustaining spiritual renewal is that organization requires delegation. It frees the people to function effectively. But secondly, form focuses function in verses 5 through 60, the bulk of the chapter. 
form focuses function. You've probably heard it said that form follows function. I'm not sure that is always true, but I think form does focus function. If there is no form, function flows like a river that has flooded its banks. The banks gave the river form. And without those banks, the water flows everywhere. It floods, and it accomplishes very little, and it does great damage. Form focuses function like the sides of a river harness the water and make it productive. The bulk of this chapter is a repeat of a list found in Ezra chapter 2. There were three returns from exile to the land of Palestine. The first return was in 538 BC under the leadership of Zerubbabel. The second return was 80 years later in 458 BC under the leadership of Ezra. And now we are seeing the third return to the land under Nehemiah in 444 BC. This chapter is a repeat of the list of people who first returned to the land under Zerubbabel over 100 years earlier. Why did Nehemiah include it here in chapter 7? Why did he repeat that list from over a 100 years earlier? Well, Nehemiah needed to answer some basic questions if he was to reorganize the nation. Who do we have available to populate the city, and what can they do? How can we structure ourselves so that the nation functions properly and it's healthy? How do we build a healthy community if we don't know who is here? So look at verse 5. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles. God is guiding this process. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be enrolled by genealogies. Then I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up first, in which I found the following record. So Nehemiah gathers all of the people together in order to arrange a census based upon the census taken 100 years earlier. The nation of Israel was founded upon clans and towns which were organized around the functions of each group of people. Each part of society, every part of society, had a role or a function to play in that society, in that faith community. There are eight categories of people in this census. One, the original leaders in verses 6 and 7. These were the people who led the first return to the land from exile. Zerubbabel, their leader, was from the royal line of David, the king. Two, the villagers or laborers in verses 8 through 38. This long list is in two parts. The first part contains the names of 18 people, while the second part contains the names of 20 villages where the people settled. Some of the names may give us insight into the relational dynamics of the group. Parosh in verse 7 was the largest family of priests to return. The name Parosh means a flea. 
One writer speculates that they were so named because they were an aggravating and annoying group of people like fleas. The name Atar in verse 16 means lefty, and Hashan in verse 19 means broad or big nose, calling attention to some physical characteristics. Now I point out these oddities because we need to see these people as real people trying to make their way through life together in this community of faith. These are not just names on a forgotten list. They are people just like you and me, with all our oddities, eccentricities, and annoying personalities. Bethlehem is mentioned in verse 26, so some of Jesus' ancestors were part of this group. Anatho is mentioned in verse 27. This is the prophet Jeremiah's hometown. You, you, you may remember that when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 BC, many years earlier now from Nehemiah's day, when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, God told Jeremiah to prepare for the day when his family would return to the town of Anathoth. God told Jeremiah to purchase a piece of land, even while the siege was going on, the siege of Jerusalem, knowing that he would never be able to enjoy his investment in that piece of land. Jeremiah bought the land on the hope of God's future promise of a return to that very piece of land. He purchased the land while in prison himself. Now that, my friends, is faith. The people probably said, what a sucker, wasting his money on land when we are about to be wiped out. He will lose his investment. But here, buried in this long list of names and places in Nehemiah chapter 7, is the partial answer to Jeremiah's act of faith so many years earlier. Do you lay claim to the promises of God, no matter how bad your circumstances are at the moment? Jeremiah did. The largest number of people were the sons of Sana'a, in verse 38. The name means hated one. They were probably considered low class in the society. Yet this despised group has the largest number of returning exiles. The greatest number were the despised ones. This despised group was the largest. You see, faith is tested by suffering. The elites of this world may consider you second-class citizens, but you can be faithful to the Lord and enjoy his blessing on your lives, my friends. Nehemiah 7 teaches us that God keeps his promises. The third category are the priests in verses 39 to 42. Nehemiah lists only four clans of priests, but these four families comprise 10% of the entire population of returnees to the land. Then Nehemiah lists four the Levites, five the singers, six the gatekeepers, and seven the temple servants. The Levites assisted the priests in their responsibilities, and the temple servants assisted the Levites in their work for the Lord. 
So each person, each group, had their own function in the organization of this community. The temple servants lived in their own quarters, and they were exempt from paying taxes. A couple of names stand out. Bakbuk, in verse 453, was also the name of a particular earthenware bottle with a bulging middle, so he may have been nicknamed for his bulging belly. Hakufa, in verse 53, means humpbacked, and Bosleth, in verse 54, means onion. Once again, these are interesting bits of information about real people, just like you and me, with all of our differences. The eighth category are the descendants of Solomon's servants in verses 57 to 60. Once again, like the temple servants, these were probably professional servants or slaves who performed the functions of civil and religious government. These were civil servants. These two groups may have been descendants of the Canaanites whom Solomon enslaved in 1 Kings 9, or they may have been descendants of the Gibeonites whom Joshua enslaved in Joshua 9. Most scholars believe that these last two categories were probably foreign slaves dedicated to the service of God. One name is interesting because it's feminine. The name Sophereth in verse 57 means the scribe. Women scribes were rare, but they did occur. One woman scribe named Miriam wrote a beautifully transcribed copy of the Pentateuch. She wrote at the end of the Pentateuch, Please be indulgent of the shortcomings of this volume. I copied it while nursing a baby. You see, God loves people, and God works in and through people, in their circumstances, with their personalities, to accomplish his goals. That has always been true. Each one of these groups of people functioned in the community of faith. They had responsibilities, and the organization of the nation was structured around these people. It is the same in the church today. Our structure can either help or hinder spiritual growth. Structure that helps spiritual growth focuses the function of each person so that they find their part in the work of the whole. Each part of a local church must find his or her place in the work and focus his or her talents in the ministry. In this way, we help people find fulfillment. We help people find significance in their spiritual lives and thereby sustain spiritual renewal. Organization requires delegation. That's the first principle. Form focuses function. That's the second principle. And the third principle, standards precede service in verses 61 to 65, standards precede service. Now we come in verses 61 to 65 
to a very difficult problem which the people of Israel faced in the first return to the land. The nation was structured around ethnic categories. The priests could not serve without being able to prove their ancestry. Unfortunately, in the first return from exile many years before Nehemiah's time, a group of exiles returned who could not prove their ancestry to serve in the priesthood. Now Nehemiah had to make a difficult decision about this group. Two names are significant here, the sons of Tobiah and the sons of Deliah are both mentioned in verse 62. It's very possible that Nehemiah's archenemy, Tobiah, may have been the namesake of his grandfather who is mentioned here. And if you turn back to Nehemiah 6.10, you will also find that Shemaiah, the priest, who as part of the plot to discredit Nehemiah, was one of the sons of Deliah. Listen to what's, what it says in Nehemiah 7, verses 64 and 65. These, these people, searched among their ancestral registration, but it could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. The governor said to them that they could not eat from the most holy things until a priest arose with Urim and Thummim. Nehemiah the governor decided that these people were not allowed to serve in the priesthood. doesn't mean they weren't part of the community of faith, but they couldn't serve in the priesthood. They could not eat the food allotted to the priests until someone located the Urim and the Thummim. His decision, I'm sure, did not win him any praise from those who were connected to these very powerful political enemies in his day. But Nehemiah knew and followed God's standards, even if it alienated others in the nation. The Urim and the Thummim were two small objects made of wood, bone, or stone, which had markings on them to indicate a yes or no answer to a question. The high priest carried them in his breastplate and would use them to give an answer to a difficult question as he asked God to answer that question. But the, they had been lost since the destruction of the temple a hundred years earlier, and in fact have never been found to this day. My point is that in any organization, including the church today, there are standards which must be met in order to be leaders in the church. Not to be in the church, but to be leaders in the church. The letters of Titus and Timothy give us basic standards for service as deacons and elders in the church, office holders. We must uphold those standards if we would be a church which sustains renewal in people's lives. Leaders must meet certain standards, and those standards must be higher standards than the standards for membership in the church. Why? Why? Well, we don't want leaders who will damage the spiritual lives of the people. Fourth principle. Organization requires support. Verses 66 to 73. Organization requires support. 
Any organization needs money to maintain the work. Nehemiah ends this long chapter by identifying the material support of the people of Israel. In verses 66 to 68, he takes stock of the material resources of the people. You cannot undertake great objectives without assessing the financial resources of those who will make it happen. Then, in verses 70 to 72, he lists the actual giving of the people to the temple treasury. It's always hard to assess the value of ancient money in terms of today's economy. But the NIV tells us that Nehemiah himself gave about 19 pounds of gold. The leaders gave about 375 pounds of gold and one and a third tons of silver, while the general population gave an additional 375 pounds of gold and one and a quarter tons of silver. Translated, that would be over $17 million today. Remember that half of this money is coming from poor people who were struggling to pay their taxes and were in debt up to their ears. If you remember from our study of Nehemiah chapter 5, they were even selling family members into slavery to buy food. Yet now they give to God and his work. What a testimony of gracious giving that we can all learn from today. Every ministry needs financial support. We can have great ideas for what we can accomplish through, through our ministry together in the church, but we cannot rob Peter to pay Paul, as the saying goes. Proper administration of our resources means that we must make sure that it is wise to move ahead with the expansion of any ministry. I saw a story in the Reader's Digest about a man who was waiting to board an airplane in California. Suddenly, the public address system blared out, Flight 100 to Dallas will be delayed 20 minutes due to maintenance problems. 25 minutes later, another announcement came over the public address system. The Dallas flight needs an oil filter. As soon as one is available, we will be on our way. After about 15 minutes, the PA system crackled again. We have installed the filter for the Dallas aircraft and will soon be boarding. But before the cheers had died down, another announcement was read. Flight 220 to Seattle will be delayed. Your aircraft needs an oil filter. Well, that, of course, is not the way to run any business, certainly not any ministry. If a church is going to sustain the spiritual growth of the people, the church must practice good stewardship of its resources. I mean, people give their money and expect it to be used for the ministry, be handled properly. And we will kill spiritual growth in people if they become cynical about how their money, how their resources are being used. Many times Christians become frustrated with how the church spends money and what it spends money on. One of the reasons that Christians become disillusioned with the church and start down the path of deconstruction 
is what the church does with its money. Bigger and bigger church buildings and more affluent church lifestyles, particularly for leaders, lead people to turn away from the institutional church. Are we spending money on goals that have eternal values, or are we wasting money on pet projects and personal benefit? People will give to God's goals. If we want to sustain spiritual growth, we must make sure that the giving serves God's goals, not our agendas, and that it doesn't fill our pocketbooks in the church. I'm sure you have heard the expression, the church is an organism, not an organization. The church is an organism, not an organization. It's wonderful to think of the church as an organic body rather than a corporate organization, and it's biblical to keep an organic body in mind as we gather in our churches. I see real danger in churches today who are increasingly modeled after the corporate model and not a biblical organic model. A corporate model may be efficient, but it often damages the spiritual lives of the people in the church and leads to that disillusionment we've been talking about. But with that caveat, let me say that the statement is only partially true. The statement is the church is an organism, not an organization. That statement is only partially true. The local church is both an organism and an organization. This is the way God designed it, with offices and guidelines for operating effectively. I like what Warren Wearsby said. The church is both an organism and an organization, and we dare not separate the one from the other. After all, if an organism is not organized, it will die. We could put it this way. If your physical body is disorganized, it will struggle to live well. And so it is with the church, too. My hand will not work well by itself. The brain must direct my hand through my neurological system based on what my eyes are seeing. My hand must be connected to muscles that move my fingers. All of this takes great organization. A healthy spiritual life requires an organized spiritual organism. Structure sustains renewal. The great reformer John Calvin liked to call the church a nurturing mother for the souls of believers, which means, as one writer put it, those disconnected from her are nothing more than spiritual orphans. Too many Christians have become so individualistic in their faith that they reject the organized church. They are deconstructing their faith and ending up with an individualistic Christianity. But without the church, they end up becoming spiritual orphans. My friends, don't become spiritual orphans.